0: Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Hey, we are a a summer crowd today. And so um, there are a little more few open seats, right? Um, But I... I'll be honest, I'm like really feeling it this morning. I was really feeling uh, the passage as I was writing it. And so if you guys could just be a little bit louder than normal, um, it it would help, okay? Yeah, come on on now. Um, So we are in the summer, because we're going to have some summer crowds, Um, we're going to be working through some Psalms, right? I know when the trust started reading, uh, John went to Psalm 2 and you're like, oh no, how many of these are we reading? But... (laughs) Um, we will not be preaching all 150, don't you worry. That's 19 psalms um, a week for two months. We're not doing that. Um, but we are going to be jumping into different aspects uh, or different parts of the psalms. Um, now, I know my, my re- sort of um, experience with people when we start to talk about the psalms goes a little bit like this. You have the super emotive person, a super passionate person who is like, I have literally only ever read the psalms right? I spend all of my time in the Psalms. And then we have the other person who has never experienced an emotion in their life, right? And they're like, it's just sprinkled in here and there. Um, That's fine, right? Um, But it does not provide much utility to me. I think we also sort of have looked at the Psalms a bit like a sitcom, right? In that I can sit down, pick a random one or my favorite one, and just read that without considering the rest of the book. And that is, that is absolutely true of the psalms, right? But it's, it's the same thing as if we were just to pick an episode of, like, The Office to sit down. Like, you can watch The Office. Some of those jokes will hit. Um, but if you hadn't watched the show before, just watch random episodes, you'll miss out on the richness of Jim and Pam's story toward love, right? <laughs> A psalm can absolutely be read apart from the rest of the psalms. I'm not calling you to read all 150 in one sitting, right? But if we don't know the overall context and flow of the anthology of the Psalms, we miss out on the richness of God and people's story toward love and liberation, right? So this morning, I want to do a couple things. I want to explore the background and structure of the Psalms, as well as the introduction of the book, which is Psalms 1 and 2, so we can have a deeper approach to how we read and utilize not just the Psalms, but the rest of the Old Testament in our lives, right? We will be going through different parts of the Old Testament later this year as well, so hopefully the Psalms will give us some tools in order to approach that, right? We're also, I also want to give you just a taste of how rich the Psalms really are. Again, we're only going to be preaching on Psalms for about two months, so we're not doing 19 Psalms a week. So I want to help develop in you just a deeper desire to jump into the Word, right? So with that, let me go ahead and pray, and we'll... Uh, continue our service this morning, Lord. Yeah, we just thank you uh, for what you have already done in this space this morning, which you were doing in Uptown yesterday, Lord, um, and just the ways in which you have met us. Uh, I just am so blown away by how uh, how blessed I am to to be uh, to get to do ministry, Lord. Um, To get to see what you are doing and join you in the renewal of all things here in uptown throughout the city and throughout the world lord So I pray this morning as I preach that your words are remembered not mine That we are about your glory not mine lord help me to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth your son's name I pray amen Okay, now I've already talked a lot about the psalms, but if you have uh, never read them, what are they? the psalms are an anthology of poems and songs constructed in an intentional way, which is great, but what's an anthology? Uh, An anthology is a compiled group of pieces of media, in this case, again, songs and poems, that is selected by the compiler, the person who put them together. They do not have to have the same author. They don't need to be from the same time period. They won't even necessarily have the same theme. But what's important in keeping them is determined by the person who puts together the list, right? The best example I have of a modern anthology is the Now That's What I Call Music series, right? Now, if you aren't aware, uh, every couple... Oh, that's my bad, tie. Every couple of months, um, Now compiles the top songs of the time, they have someone else sing it very poorly, and then they release a CD or an album, right? Now, I don't know if you guys know, I picked Now That's What I Call 14. That was like 2003. It was like... uh, What's that Beyonce and Jeezy song? should have written this down. Was was uh, Crazy in Love, I think, was on this, so it was a banger. Um, they're, on, they're on Now That's What I Call Music 86, which makes no sense <laughs> because they've been doing this since, like, the mid to late 90s, which, if you guys are doing math, that's a little over 20 years, not 86. So I don't understand. But the Psalms are the Now That's What I Call Music for the B.C. Jewish people, but over, like, a 900-year period, Right. <laughs> Uh, instead of releasing one every three months. Now, why is it important to understand that the psalms are an anthology? Because trying to contextualize 150 different poems and songs to the original context is a really, really difficult thing. In fact, I would say that considering the atmosphere that each psalm was originally written in is not only an impossible task, but it's actually a pointless one. Sure, some of the psalms' original context is super important, right? Psalm 51. It's the David one that a lot of you know without even realizing you know, right? Um, that was written in the context of David being called out for Bath- Bathsheba, right? And so that context is important. We have some understanding of his repentance in the moment. But for most of our psalms, the original context is not that important. Why? Because the importance actually comes from the, con- the context of the compilation, not the original writing the context of the situation of the Jewish people when the book of Psalms was actually put together. Now, why is that? There's two reasons. You see, there were a few more than 150 songs, poems, right, prayers in that 900-year period of Jewish history. So the choice to include these 150 was not a, let's randomly pick 150, but was an intentional choice to speak to God's people at their particular time, in a particular way, let me drive us home. My brother loves to collect baseball cards. Right? He he just loves them. He has thousands and thousands of them. And well, I won't make that comment. Well, Casey's in the other room, so never mind. Um, yeah, he, I can say it. okay. Yeah, my, and my brother has grown. Just to be clear, not a child anymore, but he still collects them. Some of these cards he puts just in a box, right? Just files in a box. Other cards, he has these little flimsy plastic cases that he puts them in. Not much protection. But the good ones, right? The really expensive ones, he puts in these hard, hard cases, and then he puts them out of the sun, right? You see, we protect what we find to be important or valuable, right? The collection of these particular songs and poems immediately points to their importance because they have been protected, Right? The second way, the original context is important, is because there were particular socio-political realities when the Book of Psalms was put together, right? What is our, what are those realities? Now, I have a brief history. I'll let you. I'll let you do it, Ty, or I can do it. I can do it. Um, I do now. I have a very brief history for the uh, the timeline of the Old Testament here. This is really, really valuable uh, and important to understand when we jump into our reading of the Old Testament, because the Old, Old Testament is not like the New Testament, where you can just sort of jump in and it's like, all right, here's a letter to a church, but it's a little bit more applicable than just that, right? Instead, much of the Old Testament is a laying out the redemptive history of God and his people, the nation of Israel. And so in order to jump into the New, Old Testament, you're jumping into the middle of a story, right? That is a really, really long story. Well, what is that history? You're like, oh, great. He's going to go through all the Old Testament. I am, but quickly. You ready? So, from the beginning, we have all of Genesis history that, you know, that's Abraham and all those other guys um, that leads to the Israelites being enslaved in Egypt. Then we get to Moses in the Exodus, which eventually leads to the Israelites in the Promised Land, which leads to judges ruling over Israel, and then it leads to the first king, right? Saul. Saul goes to David, David goes to Solomon, and then, it gets a little more complicated, the kingdom splits into two, right? So you have the northern kingdom, Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, it gets more complicated because then you have two simultaneous stories going on at a time, and you sort of have to figure out which one you're at when you jump to a book. You get into Amos, Amos is up in the northern kingdom talking to Israel, right? You get into other books, maybe it's at Judah. So, what happens is the northern kingdom, Israel, is pretty bad, um, and they eventually get overrun, predominantly by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, and they become exiles from their homelands, right? What we might even consider refugees in some cases, in these bigger powers. And then Judah, they're fine by themselves for a little bit. They were a little better, but they were not much better, right? So, what happens is they eventually get overrun by the Babylonians in 597 B.C., uh, and they were carried into exile as well, okay? Well, Babylon, Babylon then, the power who was over Israel, is eventually overrun by the Persian Empire, okay? I'm not going to say the years, they don't matter. And then in the following year, Cyrus, the ruler of the Persian Empire, he just had overrun Babylon, who had overrun Israel, right? We're getting a little Russian doll here going on, but you, you're with me. Um, they. Cyrus, the ruler of the Persian Empire, issues an edict which allowed all of the people held captive by the Babylonians to return to their homeland. That includes Israel, the Jewish people, right? So, a number of the Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem and began the process of rebuilding the city and the temple which had been destroyed. And by 515 BC, the temple was standing once again and functioning as the Jewish culture center. That's a lot. Why is it important? Well, once, um, once the Jewish people are released back to their sort of uh, state, right, they build the temple, what happens is they're allowed to go back to the religious worship, but they were not allowed to function as a separate entity from Persia. Instead, they were still under the Persian rule, and eventually the Greek and eventually the Roman when Jesus comes in, right? Temple and culture were restored, but the nation-state of Israel under a Davidic king was not. It is in this context, then, that the canon of the Old Testament is formed. So they already had the Torah as something sort of important, but much of the canon was put together in this state of being back together as sort of a religious entity under Persia. You with me? Okay, two of you are. Perfect. <laughs> in this time, um, Nancy de Clazé. De Claes- Walford, um, she said this, she said, under the same circumstances, most of the nation states of the ancient Near East simply disappeared from history. But ancient Israel did not. The post-exilic, that's post-exile, for those of you at home, um, community found a way to view their identity and to structure their existence that went beyond traditional concepts of nationhood, right? King and court could no longer be the focal point of national life, Temple and worship took center stage. Honestly, probably a little bit of God protecting them for becoming nationalists, but we don't have to get to that. Identity of Israel could not manifest as a national identity any longer, right? Instead, it was forced to manifest as a religious identity because political power was not possible. As a result of them wanting to preserve identity, they preserved the canonical Old Testament, including the Psalms, right? The Hebrew Bible in general and the Hebrew Psalter in particular then offer the human art <laughs> hermeneutical, <laughs> I don't know why that was, that really got me, uh, rationale for survival. It, it created a rationale for survival in the post-exilic community, okay? Why is all of this important for us? Uh, consider what the Jewish people just went through, right? They were exiles from the land that God promised them. They watched the temple destroyed. What does the temple represent? God's presence with them, right? And they were subjected to the harsh rule of foreign nations. I don't know about you, but I'd begin to question a lot about God and my identity at that time, right? Even as we're able to return to our land, there are a lot of questions I have about God and his goodness. Let me ask you this. How many of you have been disappointed by God, right? Right? How many of us thought that God was silent at times or that he did not hear us when we petitioned him with our needs, right? The Psalms are an anthology of songs and poems that were not just supposed to operate as a hymn book for the Jewish people. They were a way to help the Jewish people, and now us, make sense of their identity as people who are recovering from being exiles. The Psalter is a book written from the bottom of society, to help us in expressing, not written, put together from the bottom of society, right? To help us in expressing ourselves as we live in a world that is not fully our home and one in which we know the king is not yet reigning. Okay, structure of the book. Some of you are like, man, this is too much context. But look, we're getting to relevance, okay? I promise you. Now, the structure of the book is a fascinating one and it's not, I'm not gonna spend much time on it, but here's what's important for us. In the Psalms, there are five sections with the same ending. May the Lord, God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Now, the book is arranged in a five-section way intentionally in order to do what? It's point to what the Jewish people already would have considered important and equivalent to the Bible of their time, the Torah, right? So, the Psalms are directly pointing to the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the what we consider the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Why did the compiler want, us, uh, want to use the Psalter structure to point to the Torah? Because they were offering the Psalms as a sort of new Torah, a prayer book of God's people who were striving to keep the first Torah as they waited for the messianic kingdom, right? We're going to get to all that though. Along with the book being arranged in five separate books, the, the Psalter also has an introduction and an end, the end of the last five books of the Psalms. The introduction are what uh, we read this morning, Psalms 1 and 2. So for the rest of our time, we're going to jump into that introduction and see what, why did the compiler put these two Psalms at the beginning here, right? What do they want us to know as we enter the rest of the Psalms? What are the themes that they want us to know, okay? So let's go ahead and jump into Psalm 1. Now... Immediately, in our psalm, we see the author compares two types of people, the righteous and the wicked. What are our differences here? Well, first half defines the righteous one. She does not dwell in the midst of the wicked, but she delights in the word of God, right? And then she plants herself in it. Now, I want you to notice something that I think is incredibly profound here in Psalm 1. Look at the progression of verbs we have in these first three paragraphs, okay? Okay. So blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the uh, with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Right? You see, the way sin's work, sin works. Initially, all you're asked to do is just take a taste of it, aren't you? Dabble, walk for a minute with it. Next time you come back, you're asked to stay a little longer. Stand here for a minute, and before you know it, you're sitting in that sin, wondering how you got there in the first place, right? Now, how does the Psalter address this, though? The righteous person does not walk, sit, or stand, but she delights in the law, and then she meditates on it day and night, right? And before she knows it, she is planted, In it like a tree by water, constantly receiving sustenance from the word. There's progression here too, isn't there? Right? At first you're enjoying some of the things the word says. Then it's ruminating in your mind. Right? And before you know it, you are firmly planted in it. You see, while there are two lifestyles here, there are similarities. The psalm paints a picture that eventually we will spend our time dwelling in one thing or another. So I want to ask you this morning, what are you dwelling in? Because let me tell you what, if your only time with the Word is on Sunday mornings, you cannot be a tree, and you're probably dwelling in something else, right? Now, I I don't think just guilting ourselves, though, is going to get us back into the Word on a consistent basis. It's not going to work. I think sometimes that works for a week, and then all of a sudden, it sort of wears off. We've been doing it in our own power. It's not going to work anymore, right? So what do we need to do to be more consistent? I think we need to attack the lies that we innately believe about the Word, right? I think we believe many lies about the Word, but the one I want to look at this morning, uh, I think it's one of the biggest lies we believe is that the Word does not have enough power for my life or circumstances, right? How do I know we believe that the Word doesn't have power? Well, I know because on Friday, I had a really, really difficult time with Alex, my son. Really, really difficult time. I don't want to get into details just to honor him, but the reality is is I was just like left really, really broken, right? Really, really broken. And I was unsure how I was feeling or what what I needed to do in these feelings. But do you know what I didn't do? I didn't go to God. I didn't go to him in prayer, in reading his word, in any sort of way, because I didn't believe he had anything of power, and, uh, of power or relevance for me, right? I went to other things, thinking that maybe they would fix me in the moment. So the question becomes, how do we, though, combat this lie? I know it can be a little cyclical, but let's think about what God's word says about his word, okay? Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Then God said, God said, let there be light. And what happens? There was light, right? All he had to do is say it, and it was. Then God said, let there be heavens, and there were heavens. Then God said, let there be plants, and there were what? Plants. Then, okay, one of you is listening. Then God said, "Let there be animals," and there were. Then God said, "Let us make man and woman in our image," and there was man, and there was woman. God said it, and His word came to pass. Right? You guys don't believe me yet. Okay, let's keep going. As Moses is liberating the people from Israel, they are leaving, or from Egypt. Sorry, they are leaving Egypt, and they come across the impassable sea right? What does God tell the sea to do? To part, to split. And what does the sea do? It parts. Okay, let's keep going. What happens when David, right, a man after God's own heart, sees the people scared of the Philistine giant, right? And he's like, you guys don't believe God's word, do you? What happens? What happens when he steps in the thing, right? Goliath had no no chance, okay? Let's move a bit forward in history. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. Now, what happens when that Word is at a wedding, right? And they run out of wine, and the mother runs to the Word and says, gee, sorry, the Word, um, we need some help right now, right? You know, Charlie Dates says, he, he says, uh, That Jesus called to the water, and the water blushed so bad it became wine, right? (laughs) That's all he had to say, right? Do it, and it did, right? What happens when someone came to the word and said, your friend Lazarus, whom you love, is very sick? Word travels to that friend, but by the time the word gets to him, Lazarus is dead, right? Lazarus is so dead, he's already in the tomb, the stone is in the way, and he kind of stinks, right? The word tells them to move the stone. And what does the word say? Lazarus, come out. What does Lazarus do? He comes out. You guys there with me yet? What happens? What happens when this happens? What happens when the word, after being humiliated, mocked, stripped, is brought to the hill where he would be hung on a cross, what happened when after being hung, after crying out that it was finished, and after being buried in the borrowed grave? What happens on that Sunday morning? Now, we don't need the words that the word used, right? But we do know something. He got up. And the word defeated death on that Sunday morning. Now, let me tell you this. If the word is powerful to defeat death for eternity, why do we believe it isn't powerful enough for us, right? Now, I don't say this to guilt you this morning, right? I already told you that it doesn't go very far. I say this to call you to a better life and to remind you that you have been given the power to dwell in the word because of Jesus, right? You're already dwelling in something. What are you dwelling in? Believe that the person who plants themselves in the word is like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaves do not wither, right? Okay, Psalm 2. This one's quicker, I promise. Psalm 1 calls us as we enter the Psalter to be planted in His Word. What about Psalm 2? Let's go back to it. Kings and rulers of the earth are plotting against God, and God laughs, right? He lays out then the way that He establishes His kingdom despite the mocking, through His Son, through the coming King, right? And then we get verses uh, 10 to 12. Sorry, that was 7 through 9. Yep. And then 10 to 12 gives us the action step as a result of the coming King. Serve the Lord. Celebrate his ruling and take refuge in this coming king, right? Which highlights our other major theme for the introduction of the psalms. The psalms are full of the promised king and the coming kingdom. But why would they do that? I think those are sneezes. Bless you. Um, As people who are living in a post-exilic community, they do not have the autonomy to have a king of their own, right? Right? Yet they were aware of the promises that God made that there would eventually be a king, a messiah from the line of David. The Psalms reaffirm this promise. You see, Psalms 1 and 2 together, as the introduction to the anthology, call for people to be rooted in God's word and hopeful for his kingdom. Rooted and hopeful. We as people who are also waiting on the kingdom, yet with the knowledge of Jesus, are also called to be rooted and hopeful in our lives, right? And in this calling, this is how I want to wrap up, we are called to a particular countenance, a particular way of being, and that countenance is one of yearning. See, yearning like the one in Psalm 1 who got a taste of the water. And when she did, she said, maybe I'll come back a little bit more. And she comes back a little bit more, and the more she tasted, the more she wanted, right? So she plants herself by that water, knowing it's the best way to constantly get what she longs for. <laughs> Yearning like the one in Psalm 2, he realizes that the princes of the world can't save him. They promise power as they scoff at God, but the kingdoms they establish do not and have not and will never last, right? And they do not value the Imago Day in their people. So he longs for the coming kingdom, and he is blessed, happy, finds joy as he takes refuge in the promised king. See, I think our culture makes us believe that we ought to squash our longings. Longings are just silly hopes that lead us to heartbreak, they say, as we continue to build walls of comfort and cushiness around our lives. Suppress those longings until they no longer exist. But I want you to think about something with me when it comes to longings. Isn't it a bit strange that we are a people who have the capacity to long, to hope, to use our energy to yearn, right? To be in awe of something so strongly that we want more of it. I think it's strange because most of the needs and desires that we feel can be explained pretty well in like the evolutionary process, right? Like we feel hunger because we need food. Therefore, we go and we do it. That's a desire that we have, right? We have this desire for community because communities are safer than isolation. So as a result, we go into community, right? But longing, longing doesn't make much sense to me, right? I don't think longing makes us much safer, if I'm being honest. I think often we take more risks when we're longing for something, right? So don't you think that maybe we experience longing because we were made for something bigger, right? For something other than this world. See, God knew that in giving us the desire to long, He was giving us a desire for Himself. So cultivate this family, because God promises that those who long for Him will be met with Him. Right? Isaiah 55: Come, all you who are thirsty, come to waters; come without money, and you will be—you will no longer be thirsty. Matthew 5:6: Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will no lo- or for they will be filled. Right? This longingness, this yearning for God is an incredibly important countenance to cultivate, which is why we're in the Psalms this summer. The Psalms are the language of those longings as well as the language of those who want to long but don't know how, right? And so to end, I want to say this. For those of you who don't feel yourselves longing for God, wanting more in this season, you're okay, right? You're allowed to be here. Uh, This is not another checklist thing in your good Christian test, right? So tell God. Ask God for a deeper longing for him. Ask God for ways to begin that deeper search for communion with him. And don't wait on the feeling. Move toward him because he already moved toward us, right? Rest in the Psalms with us this summer as we seek God's face together. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as He makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.